Planetary Radio is public radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m., right here on KUCI. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and KUCI.org. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer and sometimes co-host with Mari. And you can learn more about our guests and other shows at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. If you don't know our host, I'll tell you a little bit about her. She's a local attorney, author of several books, including her two new books, Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She's testified many times in the California legislature and U.S. Congress and hosted her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. She's been featured on 48 Hours, Dateline, CNN, O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, what's it, Montel Williams. (laughs) (laughs) To learn more, you can visit identitytheft.org. So... Mari, ready to get going? Oh, yeah. We have somebody returning who is always... Larry. Su- Larry, he is... Oh, he's so wonderful to always return. We have so much that we learn from him every time because he does these incredible studies, and he's just such a brilliant privacy expert that we have to have him on every couple months because he is terrific. Remember the last time we interviewed him, he and his associate, Susan Jason were interviewed in a teepee, That's remember? Right. That was fun. That was fun, <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to tell, just in case our audience hasn't heard him before, I want to tell a little bit about you, Larry, before we start. Dr. Larry Poneman is a wonderful pioneer in the development of privacy audits, privacy risk management, and ethical information management. He is the chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute, and based on his vast experience in the fields of corporate governance, privacy compliance, data protection, and business ethics. He consults around the world on global privacy management programs. In fact, he recently just went to Australia, New Zealand. Dr. Poneman was also appointed to the Advisory Committee for the Privacy for the United States Federal Trade Commission and to two California state task forces on privacy and data security laws. Larry Poneman was recently also appointed by the governor of Arizona to serve as a public member of the State Board of Optometry. And he's chaired faculty positions at Babson's College and SUNY Binghamton, and he's published dozens of articles and five learned books. He is one of my very favorites. He's, he's constantly called by the media every week when I'm looking at my privacy clips. I see Larry's name everywhere being quoted. Um, and he's been on CNN, Fox News, CBS, CNBC, and MSNBC, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times. On and on and on, and he is so sweet and wonderful to come on our show again. You can also learn more about what the fabulous things that he's doing at Poneman.org. Now, Larry, how are you? Oh, Mari, what a wonderful introduction. My head is swollen, and my <laughs> ego is expanding, and it is a pleasure to be on your show once again. Oh, well, we had to catch up because we have, I think it's four surveys that we haven't talked about that are oh, really know. very important. And um, you've you've really published so many great surveys and studies. Let, let's talk about these because they've been written up in the in the um, media. Well, thank um, you. Now, but first of all, I think a lot of people don't know how you do this. So, can you give us an overview of how you conduct your research surveys? Sure. Well, Poneman Institute is a research organization. In fact, we're a member of the Council of American Survey and Research Organizations, CASRO. That's kind of like being in the winning an Academy Award in the research industry. And <laughs> And I serve on their board as well. It's, it's a, just a terrific organization. And what we've done is we decided when we started our company to focus linearly on privacy, data protection, and information security. 
about half of our studies focus on the consumer issues. What do people, what keeps you up at night or what keeps the average person, say, uh, in the financial services industry or uh, perhaps in, in, in the telecommunications industry? What, what worries people? And then the other side of our, of, of our research um, endeavors is on corporate benchmarking. What are practices? What are, the, what are the procedures? What are the technologies that companies are deploying today to manage privacy and data protection risk? Yeah. So, so how do you get these corporations and consumers to buy into wanting to be part of your surveys? Well, I don't know. It's a little bit of a, it's more of an art form than a science, I have to admit here. <laughs> bribery. <laughs> yeah, bribery. Um, we, we know a lot of people. We know how to beg for participation, so we do that. Um, we actually do provide benchmark report cards for companies that participate. So, you know, if they're looking for new and better data so that they can see where their practices are relative to others, that's, that's usually an incentive. So it's a whole bunch of different activities. And then, of course, when you do this kind of work, you normally have to sign your life away and NDNA agreements or, you know, you find yourself enlisted in the Marine Corps and you didn't mean to do that. Uh, <laughs> nothing <laughs> just, against the Marines. Just for those who don't know what an NDA is, it's a non-disclosure <laughs> the agreement. agreement. Yeah, you know, we, we use those kind of terms all the time, all these letters, but people who are listening may not know what we're talking about. Oh, I know. We live in a world of acronyms, right, unfortunately. Right. Right. But how do you get – so so we know how you get the corporations involved because they get some feedback on what they're doing sure. and what, you know, what's the best practices. But how do you get consumers to buy into this? I'm, you know, if anybody calls me for a survey, I don't want to be part of it. How, how do you do that? It's really funny. You know, I, I remember the first survey that we did was a telephone survey. And we said, we're doing a survey. And they said, on what? And I said, privacy. And they started to laugh. <laughs> That's an axiom. <laughs> like, wait a second. You're calling me up at dinner time. The only time I'm here with my family, and it's a privacy survey. But, right. but, but we use telephone, unfortunately. We also yeah. do web-based research. Um, like other research companies, we actually compensate participants. Sometimes it's a small amount of compensation, five or ten dollars. Sometimes it's uh, you know participation in a sweeps- sweepstakes for a nano iPod, or sometimes it's a gift oh. coupon. So we actually do compensate our our participants. Unfortunately, now there's a problem in the research industry. It's called the professional survey taker. Oh. People who just live on the internet waiting to do another survey. <laughs> <laughs> So we have to avoid those people. So right. we get a people who are more representative of the United States or other countries that we that we do studies in. Hmm. Well, you know, just recently you finished your survey on confidential data at risk. And, you know, we've heard about so many security breaches. We're almost up to 100 million people who've received those letters, which, by the way, Lloyd and I just received um, another letter from our own bank when one of when our, our – um, Premier Banker had our uh, laptop in her car. It was broken into, and our data was on her laptop. <laughs> Great. I know. And that's the day she saw me on Montel. She's watching me on Montel, and then she put her laptop in the car, and then she came back out, and her car was broken into. So, so it was Montel's fault. It, yeah, well, she was saying how ironic how she was just yeah. watching me, and she goes, Mari's going to kill me, but she was just about right. But anyway, we've heard about all these security breaches, and we talk about them quite a bit. Um, but what are the primary reasons that security breaches of our sensitive information even occurred? This is what you were really looking into, was the what kind of data and how is it at risk? Tell us yeah, about this survey. You know, great question, Mari. But basically what we found is that, um, unfortunately, no company is completely secure. And as we rely more and more on portable or peripheral devices like PDAs and memory right. sticks and laptops, right the problem just appears to be getting worse. Yeah. I mean, in in the olden days, before it was a requirement to notify people, like a couple of years ago, um, these things happen. You know, servers were stolen and computers were lost, but now there's just more devices that are portable, and it's just a a, a gross inability by many organizations to control the endpoints to their networks as well as their enterprise systems. Um, So the problem is maybe a lost laptop, and uh, when a laptop is stolen... You know, typically people have to report it. You know, they show up for work the next day and they don't have a computer. So right, right. Go. That's but, exactly what just happened to us. Yeah. Right. 
But when a memory stick, you know, a little USB memory stick right. is lost, people don't report that necessarily. And that's probably the the sleeping giant of data breaches. All and they're so tiny. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. and they hold so much data. I just had to bring one over to UCI, and I just couldn't believe how much data it can hold. And, yeah, and you're small. right. And then it's just like on a keychain, right? Keychain, or sometimes it's disguised as a pen. Right. You leave it on a table, a desk, it's a hotel room, and those are the things that are going to cost companies mammoth amounts of, of, of cost and dollars as a result of just not having a procedure. Now, the good news, there are technology companies. I've, I've heard about this company called Red Cannon that uses an encryption technology and controls the endpoints to systems. So there are ways to fix the problem. They're not cheap but at least there's a solution, and maybe over time those solutions will be more economical. Well, you know, the, the California legislation um, that was the first bill that was introduced and the first law that passed of requiring notification under a security breach really has the carrot in it so that if you have computerized information that is acquired by an unauthorized person and it is not encrypted, you have to notify. But if it is encrypted there's no duty to notify so so all of these companies that are making it public you know for a hundred million people almost um they wouldn't even have to notify if they were encrypting yep exactly right i mean encryption there's various levels of encryption so you know there's that nsa standard encryption right then there's kind of the rank and file and some encryption even a you know the average bad guy could figure out the key and and, and worm their way to the data. But the reality is that if it's encrypted, 99.9% of your risk is gone. Now, there might be some people in your audience who will throw stones at that percentage. Maybe it's a little less, maybe it's a little, a little more, but it's right. definitely a good fact. And the cost of encryption isn't all that high. There are companies, PGP being one, been around a long time. And o- PGP stands for Pretty Good Privacy. Yeah, Pretty Good Privacy. <laughs> Another acronym. Right. But that organization and others have tech tools that can be uh, purchased uh, for low dollars, and, and obviously the carrot then, if they lose the laptop or they lose the memory stick, the good news is you don't have to notify the world. Um, you basically have a problem because you've lost the, the hardware, but you don't have to worry about the data. Exactly. So, so let's talk a little bit, though, about in this survey that you did, um, you had basically four questions that you were trying to answer. Mm-hmm. And the first one, I'm just looking at the survey so I, I can help you out here, was how pervasive is the problem of unprotected confidential data at rest? Right. And what did you find out about that? Well, we found out that it is um, pervasive. It's a problem for most organizations. Most organizations, it's not even about control. They don't even know where their data at rest is. Like if you go to the typical company and you say, have you done an inventory? of sensitive personal information or or perhaps business confidential information, would you be able to find it? And admittedly, most of the IT security practitioners that participated in our study said, no, they don't do it. They right. don't either have the time to do it or they don't even have the ability or the know-how to do a data inventory. So, you know, it is a pervasive problem. Yeah, and if, and if everybody in the organization has sensitive information on all of their different electronic equipment and you don't even know what they've transferred it to, maybe it's in their cell phone, their oh, PDA, yeah. their, you know, anything, their BlackBerry, you know. <laughs> it could be I anything. Mean, it could be on anything. Yeah, on their iPod. So, yeah, so they're not inventorying it, and, they're, and there's probably not enough restrictions as to where it can be transferred. Yep, exactly right. Yeah. So then the second question was, um, how do information security practitioners locate sensitive or confidential business information that resides somewhere? How do they even do it if they were going to try to do it? Yeah, so so now the inventory issue, we found that most companies don't do that. So what they might use are different technologies. Very few organizations even attempt to locate it, but there are these technologies. It's kind of an emerging industry, with a sub-industry within security called data leak prevention technologies. Vontu, for example, is the industry leader. But there are other companies like Port Authority and and Reconnects and and many others. And what these organizations have are tools that will help you locate where certain types of data resides in the infrastructure. How does it do that? Well, it looks for certain characteristics. So, for example, you define a data policy. You say, well, any 
any number that kind of resembles the structure of a Social Security number. I want to know where it is. Nine times out of ten, it is Social Security. One time out of ten, it may not be. Right. So it's not a perfect hit, but it allows you to discover where your data is most likely resides. And, and it could be anywhere in the network. It could be at the, you know, the endpoint, or it could be at the laptop or desktop level, or it could be on a file server or even on an application server or somewhere in the system where data is normally stored. Wow. It, it, it sounds like it's an overwhelming problem for IT. I mean, it, it is. Goodness gracious. All right. So, so um, do companies, so what did you learn from this study after all? I mean, what was the final outcome of what you learned you know, from this? The, the bottom line is we, it, it, it's a mess, really. <laughs> I mean, we, we, uh, probably you didn't have to do a study to know that. If that sounds very sophisticated. <laughs> it's a mess. You know, I have that's a, the result. That's the conclusion. <laughs> you know, he has a PhD here, and it's a mess. But but the, but the reality is that it's a mess. Eighty-one percent, for example, of of companies of the these are IT professionals said that their companies lost. Eighty-one percent said their companies lost um, a, a laptop or an equivalent storage device that contained unprotected sensitive personal information in the last twelve months, and at least once, and probably more than once. In some cases, it was a weekly occurrence. So, you know, when we hear about these data breaches, they're not isolated events. And I believe, my gut tells me that when many companies aren't even aware of all of the breaches that are probably happening right. each and every day. So, 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 you know, you talked about Vontu, and, and we actually had the CEO of Vontu on our show last year. So you talk about that in, in terms of them being able to help you locate mm-hmm. this data. But how about um, the protection of it? I mean, what is there like a strategy that, that IT professionals are trying to put together yeah. that, that really is going to be a solution to this? A great question. Again, I, I think that more and more IT professionals, well, let me just say historically IT professionals operated kind of in the middle levels of management. They weren't really talking to upper management or C-level executives. So they were much more tactical. They were responding to incidents. In fact, many uh, IT people still spend a chunk of their time responding to problems and incidents. But now we're starting to see more strategic IT security folks, people who are looking at the bigger picture, trying to have a holistic approach. Um, My friends at Unisys have a term that they coined. It's called the security ecosystem. It's actually looking at security as something that touches everything that you do, not just technology, but it's people, process, and policy. And I really like that that example or that, that, that metaphor because I think at the end of the day, it is like the environmental ecosystem. You have to do lots of different things in order to control outcome. And a small issue in one part of the ecosystem can have a devastating effect on the other. So that really incorporates privacy more than it did in the past before. You're saying IT was just reactive, and now they're trying to be more proactive. And then in being proactive, they've got to incorporate the, the whole system. Yeah, absolutely. In the olden days, again, probably a couple of months ago, <laughs> yeah, right. the, right. the IT security person would say, my job is keeping the bad guy out. Right. And, and now I think most people realize that the greater threat is the insider. And so privacy issues become much more salient, as well as corporate compliance issues, governance, a whole bunch of other issues start entering into the strategic equation. You know, I think you brought up a really good point about the the dirty insider, which you did a study on that, too. So I'm going to skip over to that because I think that's, I mean, besides the cost of the breach, which we're going to come back to, I think it's really important that we find out about the internal threat. So so what what did you learn about that? Oh, gosh, yeah. Again, another area, another, something else to worry about. <laughs> we, we found that the majority of the IT security problems, and I say majority, probably somewhere north of 70%, if you had to categorize it as was it an external threat, some packer trying to get in, although those are usually a little bit more interesting and maybe a sexier story to tell, the bigger, <laughs> the bigger problem was the insider, the negligent employee making mistakes, you know, or, so or, or the malicious employee. Or, or the malicious employee. Yeah. So, so while the frequency, we found that frequency, that the number of problems were more likely associated with the negligent or incompetent employee, the, the more costly problems were situations where it was a malicious insider. Now, the insider, because the workplace has changed, and, you know, it used to be employee or manager. Now you have temporary employees and contractors. So 
the the fact that someone may be a couple of levels removed but still right. has incredible access rights creates another level of risk. And we also found that outsourcing is an, another problem in and of itself that creates opportunities for malicious insiders to do bad things. Right. And I think that sense of loyalty that people used to have for their company, um, that there's very little loyalty to a company when you're outsourced, right? I mean, you might be in another country. And and if they see there's an opportunity, if you have access and an opportunity, even if, if, you know, we're not just talking about large corporations where people have access, and I think it's pretty scary when the IT people uh, have so much knowledge and no one else does. No one can know what they're doing. But, you know, even at small accounting offices, uh, doctor's offices, we see a lot of identity theft, for example, comes from dirty insiders. They have access, they have opportunity. It might even be, you know, someone who works in your home. So so that is a huge issue of the unscrupulous employee or like you said, the negligent employee, and, and I'm, I'm laughing now because I recently just went through two and a half hours on the phone <laughs> with somebody from India who was outsourced from Delta trying to get my my uh, airline tickets, and they screwed it up so badly. <laughs> so, but then when I went to the airport, nothing worked. I thought it was yeah. going to be real easy. Okay, all I have to do is just pick up this, this uh, e-ticket that I had to go for my mileage, and it was a mess, Larry, and they didn't understand me. They didn't know what was going on, and frankly, I don't think they really cared. <laughs> yeah, and and that's the worst, right? That's the worst part of it. I mean, it's one thing not it's to be incompetent, but to be incompetent and not care. Right, and, and then and you give a lot of your sensitive information. You know, yeah. I mean, you're 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 talking with them and you're giving them credit card. Which, all right, so if my credit card is stolen, all right, it's it I can deal with it. You know, yeah. but you when you give other information, sure. and, and and I think it's very uh, disturbing because because of this insider threat. <laughs> But the problem is real, and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Unless we have controls in place to monitor what's actually happening with their data, we're relying on just, you know, being being a one name out of a million, I suppose. It's kind of the law of large numbers. We're, we don't think it's going to happen to us, and obviously it, it will sooner or later. So I agree. The insider threat is a problem, and I think some companies are starting to deal with it. They're using new um, technologies like event management systems, for example, it looks at patterns of data, like who might be the most likely employee to commit a crime right. you know, based on a pattern of bad acts. A good example of that technology is a company called ArcSight, very interested in what they have. But again, technology helps, but it's not the only solution. You know, it's smart people, good policies, and vigilance, you know, just monitoring the environment. And having things like audit trails and, and limiting access, like why should anybody in the world be able to access this sensitive information? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I think people, you know, in the corporations are starting to recognize that they have to limit access and and have passwords or, or a special key to get into a particular, um, you know, where the, whether it's either online or offline. Where they can get the you know the key to unlock the door, right? Oh, absolutely. But unfortunately, for convenience, uh, time pressure, um, just plain old incompetence, even with passwords and PIN numbers, it's not secure. You know, it just right. takes one person to leak the global root password of the system. Right. Everyone then has access to it, and there's really no safety. But I agree with you. It's a problem that I think a lot of Americans, I think we as a whole, are generally complacent about it. I think we should be, you know, fighting back a little bit more and demanding organizations and government to just be a little bit more careful with data about us and our families. Right. Now, who poses um, the, the greatest risk inside? Well, you know, it's a good question. What we found is that call centers are particularly susceptible to the insider threat. And the reason why that happens to be the case, well, frankly, people who work in a call center, many people are temporary employees, uh, many. This is a function that is outsourced to different parts of the world, and a lot of the technology that call centers use rely pretty extensively on personal information. So when you were calling Delta and the person in India, that person was probably looking at a terminal, a screen that had a lot of your personal facts, and with you know the wrong person, you know the person on the other side, they can do just about anything with the information they have about you. So. 
that is one of the areas that leads to great risk. Uh, other areas are just corporate IT. As you mentioned, law and accounting departments, you think, well, they're professionals and they're going to be safe, but that's not always the case. We also found that in healthcare, health people have access to healthcare records are probably the best able to to steal your identity and do a lot of bad things to you. Healthcare right. records are the crown jewel, the holy grail of identity theft. Right, right. So how much do these insiders cost businesses? Oh, a lot of money. We we actually try to measure that. Uh, for the most part, the average insider threat um, to an organization probably translates into potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars. So if you're dealing with 100 of these a year, multiplied by more than $100,000 of, of potential cost, it could be millions, tens of millions of dollars of cost. Wow. Yeah. So, again, is, who, who's, like, in charge of this? Is it the privacy officer? Is it uh, HR when they do background checks? Um, who really is the manager of these insider threats? Well, in our study, we found that the, the number one answer to the question, so who in your organization is responsible, number one answer, no one person. <laughs> Great, no one. <laughs> Translates into no one is responsible. <laughs> the, the buck doesn't stop here. <laughs> there is no buck. You know, I'll tell you, it is very scary. So so what we, we want to figure out is if you're in an ideal world, then who should be responsible? And I think it is a, it is probably a concerted effort. Definitely the privacy officer has a role to play. I think it's definitely an IT security issue. It's HR. And so when I, as I mentioned before, that arc site type of technology, it actually tries to do a profile of individuals who have certain characteristics that might give rise. And it's not that the person is bad and you're monitoring bad people. These are good people who might have enormous access to data, and they just need to be higher on your radar screen. But who should be monitoring that? It would definitely include privacy, security, probably human resources, and maybe some other folks. Right, and and many more companies now. I read somewhere that about 80% of companies now are doing background checks on people to right. see if there's any criminal background in their, you know, and Lloyd's pointing that I have to reintroduce you right now because people are driving by and they're saying, who is this brilliant man? <laughs> well, let me tell you, this brilliant man is Dr. Larry Poneman. He is CEO and founder of the Poneman Institute. He is the privacy expert in the world, one of them. Oh, my goodness. How do you like that? And wow. he, he was really the pioneer in the development of privacy audits, privacy risk management, and responsible information management. And uh, he's just terrific. So we're asking him about some of these uh, very intriguing surveys and studies that he's done. So how are businesses managing this real threat? You know, I, how are they doing it right now? Well, the, be- the the really good companies are starting to think about this as a, a problem that, well, as I mentioned before, using again that metaphor of the security ecosystem, it's a it's a problem that requires a overall overarching strategy. You know, it's a it's kind of like fighting a war. Um, you know, you can't just think about one beachhead at a time. You have to kind of think about the complexity of all of the different moving parts and elements and. I think what we really have in the average organization is security is something that is never perfect. There's going to be some degree of imperfection and problem. And so your your first strategy is to identify the real serious risk. And those are the things you put a lot of resources on first, and then you kind of take on the next level. And you're always sensitive to the environment changing. So it's a combination strategy. It, you have to have the right technology because, in fact, the problems are now sufficiently intractable that you know you cannot actually find a person or a one technology solution to solve all of the problems you need multiple people and multiple technologies so smart organizations understand this and are starting to kind of think about it in a strategic sense um, the majority of organizations are still tactical or fragmented or do you basically take a knee-jerk reaction just fighting fires all the time that's not a good place to be Right. And now some industries seem to do better than others. We find that financial service companies, specifically the banking industry, maybe because they have more at stake, these organizations seem to do it better than other industries. They're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they seem to be more concerned and more strategic in the implementation of security than other industries. 
Do you think it's because they work more closely with law enforcement? Is that part of the issue, do you it think? It could be. I think they just have more of a, a compliance mindset. You know, they're fighting money launderers and, right. and terrorists and everything else. So they have and they to have to report uh, under the Patriot Act and, and yeah. all this stuff, yeah. But so, so you know, when you're talking about ArcSight, and I don't really know, I know they, they uh, help sponsor the study, but I... I really don't know uh, that much about them. They basically have a mosaic. Is that what it is? I'm thinking about when I read this book years ago about, um, what was it, The the Gift of Fear by uh, Bear, uh, Gavin DeBecker. I forgot, but Gavin DeBecker. Yeah, do you remember that? Anyway, he had um, this mosaic that they were using about domestic violence where you would rate some someone about what, chance they would have this law enforcement was using it to to kind of find out what chance there was that this person might commit murder right and um they did it on oj simpson and they found he had like nine out of ten out of the points that he would commit murder it was interesting because i was good friends with a captain in law enforcement who was using the mosaic in domestic violence so that's what it kind of reminded me of that it's kind of like it's a it it doesn't really determine, but it says if if they have these characteristics, they're more likely to do this. Is that exactly. what this this yeah, is? Yeah, that's what it is. It looks at the environment that people are in to determine who in that environment is more likely to pose a great threat for different reasons, different types of threats. So it could be the, the theft of intellectual property. Well, obviously, it's going to require someone who has access to that property. Right. So for example, if you have the, the secret formula for Coke, and, you know, you're one of 30 people in a company, you're going to probably be a higher risk at Coke. Right. Um, and I think at the end of the day, that is that mosaic model that you just described is very similar to what ArcSight is all about. It looks at events and tries to actually correlate different activities. So, you know, as I mentioned, the ecosystem model where one part of the ecosystem could cause disruption in others. And what the ArcSight system allows you to do is correlate those events in such a way to predict where your real problems are. Just not just people, but also technologies that may not be functioning well enough or, or functioning at all. And so let's say you, you see this mosaic or whatever it is this, this, um, and that some people are more at risk. So do you split up duties? What, what are some of the solutions when you know this? Well, you, 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 you mentioned one solution. The idea is that it's something that has to be managed by people on the ground. So you might have one overall chief information security god, leader, guru, uh-huh. and then that person would have an army, not an army, but several people who would be responsible for the different elements of security. And if it's a global organization, it's not just security in one place. It's probably security around the world. So you probably need people on the ground with that skill set in different parts of the world. And someone to look over the shoulder. I know they always say law enforcement tells you that if you have just one bookkeeper who's in charge of everything, that's not a good idea. You should have several people kind of looking over each other's shoulders, and then th- right. there's no temptation to to commit theft. You know exactly. what I mean? And, it's segregation of duties. We right. call it in the auditing world. Right, right. So is that what they're thinking of, like segregating those duties and, and yep. kind of having, yeah, and whistleblowers and, 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 and motivation for blowing the whistle, that kind yep. of thing? Yeah, and, and, and ideas, the, the structure is, a, is about you know, pushing accountability to the front line, but having some vigorous monitoring so that you could actually see whether someone is doing what they're supposed to do. Even on the compliance side, even those people who are doing the monitoring, you sometimes have to have a watch-the-watcher orientation, too, because... The people that are in the security fields many times have the privileged access rights to right. the keys to the kingdom. And so those people, if they become disgruntled or malicious, they can do more harm than the average the average employee. Exactly. That's the scariest part because they have such knowledge that we don't have. I mean, I know you're pretty techie, but, if, but you know, when my computer consultant comes over, I mean, you know, if, if I didn't really trust him like I do trust him, it could be very scary because I have no idea what he's doing to my computer. Yeah. You know what I mean? So at least at a large corporation, if you have to have some other people who know what these people are doing so that there is some kind of oversight. Yeah, and unfortunately, and I, I can't give you the details, but I know of many situation, situations where the, the, the bad guy, the malicious insider, was the IT security chief or someone who is responsible for, say, network security. So it does create a real risk. And I'm saying most of these people are absolutely wonderful people. Right. They would never do anything wrong. 
them, but but they're like in any population, there may be some bad guys. They have the skills to do it right, and they decide to do whatever it takes to you know advance their cause. Right, they have the opportunity, and I think that's what's scary about these companies. When and I'm not in corporation, you know, and, and I know you used to be in the corporate world, so you know this even better than me. And people who are driving by understand this that you know when you're in a corporation, there it can be very iffy. You don't know if you're going to have your job for very long, sure. and and there's restructuring all the time. I had one company I was working with, and I work with this uh, top. CEO for five years, and I got a phone call recently. Well, I'm not with the company anymore. It just is like the rug was pulled out from under him. Yeah. And, you know, just if you do that to an IT person and you let him continue to work there after you tell him this, you're uh-huh. in big trouble. Well, I, one case, I, I, I'll give you just a little bit of the details. It was a case where the information security, the data center, was being outsourced to a company in India. Um, and the company was, everyone in the center said, was, everyone was told that they are going to be unemployed in nine months to a year. Stupid. And of course, the last Stupid. thing that they did is they, they, the last person to leave who turned off the lights was their IT security chief. Now, as it turned out, this person was remarkably honest and did the right thing, but one of his members of his team, the security guy, just went ballistic. You know, fear yes. of losing his job, he was in a small town where he grew up, he didn't want to move. So not a, a lot of career mobility, and uh, as a result of that, it was not for personal gain, but just his own anger at the system, and he did an incredible amount of damage to the system. So this is, you know, not a smart thing to do for the company, but, you know, it's these things do happen, so you need to pay attention to these kinds of issues. Yeah, I think that's where HR gets involved, too, is that you have to be very careful when you tell people you're going to be laid off, and then you continue to let them work. It never seems like a good idea. Yeah. Believe it or not, I had clients who um, the the parents of one of my clients were on that Egyptian Airlines that the, oh, the guy crashed, remember? Yeah. Well, I don't know if you know this, but she told me that they had found out that the pilot who crashed the plane was told before he got on that plane that he was fired. He was going to be uh, investigated for child molesting in Egypt. Oh, my God. And um, that's what he did. Um, that he, th- you know, that's what they think happened because what he didn't do it for his life insurance. He didn't do it for any other reason. But he was told right before he got on that plane that he was going to be fired when he got to the United States. Yeah. <laughs> how well, stupid could you it, be? It, how you know? stupid! But then you know you think about it, and these things happen all the time. Maybe not as 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 dramatic yeah. as that, but yeah. at the end of the day, we make these decisions. Well, you're trusted for the next three weeks, but then you're fired. I mean, yeah. you know, what, what kind of a message is that? I think you're better off if you're going to fire somebody say, look, we're going to pay you for the next month. Take your stuff. I know you worked hard. Just go take a vacation, and we're sorry we're doing this to you. Yeah, yeah. Having, <laughs> having worked in big corporations, it's, a, it's an ugly scene, really. But at, at the end of the day, um, you know, I think everyone should work in small companies that they own. But even if you have small <laughs> companies, I mean, when, I, when I've had to let people go, I let them go that day. Yeah, and I just hard, pay them. I just pay them because it is just not worth it. Because um, I've even had people. I've had one person who uh, tried to do something to to my uh, to my website. Oh boy! Yeah, just kind of just because he, he was on drugs, and I found out about it. So, not a good idea. So you just just it's the just, worst thing in the world. I mean, there are some people who actually enjoy, you know, the process of firing an employee. I just hate it more than anything else. It's almost as bad as going to the dentist. <laughs> It's not quite as bad. <laughs> no, it's absolutely worse. But but this what did Lloyd say? I don't mind. Oh, he doesn't mind. <laughs> so this kind of leads us to the cost of a data breach. Besides, oh, yeah. you know, there this is it's the human cost which we've just been talking about. But let's talk about that new study, that oh, newer study. Help us understand the different types of costs and and what happens with a data breach. Sure. Well, um, we started this analysis last year. We published our first study, and it's the cost of a data breach. What does it cost an organization? Or more specifically, is there a per capita cost for people who are victims of a data breach? How could you calculate that cost? Right. And what we did is our cost model is based on interviews, and, it, and it's a benchmarking technique. Um, what we were able to find in this year is that, A, the cost um, increased pretty substantially from about 130 Four dollars per victim to about one hundred and eighty-two dollars per, vict- per victim. Wow! Uh, and the cost categories that we looked at included the, the cost 
that a company spends on detection right. and escalation of the breach, cost around the notification, cost around the ex post response, you know, like the provision of free services like credit monitoring and so forth. And the most significant, most salient cost is the cost category that pertains to opportunity losses that people will actually leave as a result of receiving that notification. For example, in one case, it was a financial, it was a bank. And in the case where they had um, more than, I I don't want to tell you the number of breaches because I'll probably then reveal the bank, but they had a lot of breaches in a 12-month period. And if you were unlucky enough as a customer to be in two or more breaches, there was almost a 100% chance that you as a customer would decide to leave the bank. So a breach could be very costly, especially if it's not involving one or two people, but it's involving hundreds of thousands or even millions of people. Right, because then it has to be publicly reported. Yeah, and, then and they so, have to do yeah. something with this information. So when people you know, get that notification, it's not that they're saying, oh, gee, it's like, the Graham Leach Bliley privacy notice. Who reads it anyway? Right. People are reading it and they're getting angry or nervous and they leave and they and they vote with their feet. So that's why the, there's a cost associated with data breach. Right, right. And then you were talking about um, the lost productivity cost too. Oh yeah, the amount of time you have to do chasing these things down, and then the, the cost of just the gen- general worry, right? Because if you're a victim and you receive the breach, you don't know what it really means. Does it mean I start cutting up my credit cards and get new cards issued? Do I do I do anything with this information? Right. Do I cancel all of my accounts and get new accounts? Sure. Yeah, and then I guess the cost of the customer service, if, if you're going to get called, like, um, you know, with my bank, you know, I've called several times as a result of this. I, I want to know more, right? So, yeah. I mean, it's all that time that these people could be taking doing something more productive, and instead they're having to deal with someone who is, you know, upset and worried and asking more questions, and then they have to ask somebody else because they don't know the answer. Yeah, and, and unfortunately you call up for, you know, call this number, and you call up the number and you get a customer service person who doesn't know a thing about it. Right. And so, it's, so companies can, you know, have a pretty shoddy approach to responding to your questions, which only heightens your concern. doesn't make it any better, that's for sure. You know what's really funny? They gave us two years of credit monitoring, and so um, our premier banker signed us up for that, and we thought, okay, so that was like a, a month and a half ago. And then we get a letter in the mail yesterday, give us your social security number, your birth date, um, and a whole bunch of stuff, and you ha- and you can't just call us with it. You have to send this in. So I immediately thought, this is ridiculous because my bank already has that. They, they were already given that. That's what they lost, you know. And um, and it was real frustrating. And I didn't know if it was maybe fake. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. why would they do this? And, and so there was that whole question of, is this even fake? And then I said, I don't want to send it through the mail. I don't even trust the mail. I want to just, you know, fax it to you. And they said, no, you can't fax it. And then I had to talk to a supervisor to allow me to fax it so that they could get my credit report. And so, you know, once this kind of stuff happens, you're like even questioning whether the letters or the emails that they're sending you are are really just phishing. Or... Oh, absolutely. How many phishing messages do you get? It's all about your account has been right. compromised. Please click here. Right. So it's almost always about a security or, or privacy issue, and you were probably smart not to do the letter with the, with the Social Security number because the same thing happened to me. And it wasn't phishing, by the way, but it was really odd. That here, you know, they lost my record and they asked for my social security in a letter. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly like what that happened to us. <laughs> is that bizarre? And and what's so funny is that I told you we have a premier banker, so she, we never have to do stuff like that. That's what you have a premier banker for. Sure. So I called her, you know, and, and she said, I took care of it. Don't worry. They have everything that they need. Don't worry about it. I'm so sorry. We're going to save you the time. And then we get this letter, you know, and so since she's out of town, then I had to deal with that for a couple hours. But very frustrating because once you you wonder about that trust that's lost, right, and then yeah. you don't want to trust anything. Of course, then, then we're getting to the point where we're saying, well, if there's 100 million people that have gotten these letters, you know, and how many more smaller companies have sent, have sent letters that haven't been in the newspaper, Oh, many. In, in fact, many big companies have had breaches that have not been in the news, newspaper either. They've right. been real lucky at, you know, sneaking by the press. 
Right, right. So you did the the consumer survey on the data breach, okay? Yeah. So you you did fifty one thousand adult consumers, mm-hmm. and um, you had found it. Wow, it just blew me away. Twelve percent of the nine thousand people had received a notification, right? Yeah, so it, it translated into about 23 or 24 million Americans wow. was our extrapolated total at the time of the study. And now, of course, the number is over almost 100 million people. But the reason why our number was smaller than the total is many people may not even be aware. It's amazing. They may not even be aware that they had a breach because either the notification was, you know, you thought it was more junk mail from the bank. Right. Or right. it was an email or it was a big posting in a... In, a, in the USA Today. So most people aren't really necessarily paying attention to these breaches. And when they open the envelope and they realize it's not a joke, they, then they start to worry about it. But first you have to get to the point where I recognize the fact that I had a breach. Right, that you opened the letter or you something like that. You the letter and you acknowledged it because a or lot you, of people aren't getting it. Right, or, or you probably dismiss the, the email as phishing. Or something, oh, yeah. or, the, or if they call you, you might be worried that it's you know some kind of what do they call that vishing now? Yeah, <laughs> vishing. Vishing, where they get voice activated, or somebody with their voice is trying that to sounds like a do German pre-tech. word, vishing. Vischer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. That means washing, I think, in German. I- <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. So, 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 what did you, you know, what do you think that this will do? This now that you've done this cost of security breach, what do you think that's going to do in Congress now that we have an entirely different complexion in Congress? Oh, great question. Um, well, today I had a call from the GAO, and they're doing some interesting work for the for the Congress. Let's on, let's uh, tell people that it is the Government Accounting Office, and they are keeping people accountable, or they're they're yep. looking at the accountability of government. So. I yeah, just, so, the, sorry. The, so, the, so the GAO uh, was there obviously looking at research and they're trying to understand the value proposition to notification. And I think what's mm-hmm. going to happen, this is my gut, because now we, ha- or we have this new word called bipartisanship. Right, right. <laughs> so the fact <laughs> is, think about privacy as something that there's no one on the left or the right could argue. It's important. Right. I mean, it, it, if you think about it, suppose that you're concerned about your privacy rights uh, and you're, and you're a, a member, a staunch member of the NRA, or you're a member of the ACLU, so you're on two extremes. Privacy is important to you. It's important to all of us. So it's one of those areas that because of bipartisanship, it's one of those laws that will pass because it's important to both sides. So my pr- prediction, we're going to see legislation, privacy, comprehensive privacy legislation in the next Congress. And what is it going to look like? I don't have a clue. Uh, it could be like California 1386, or it could be something less or more than that. I doubt it's going to be less because I think California 1386 is a wonderful law, and it has now stood the test of years. Uh, it works, and companies have just accepted it as part of life. So I think we, we will see laws that kind of resemble that. Um, but, no, well, but, Larry, I have a question, though. Sure. See, now now that you've done this great study, and, and it shows that the cost of a security breach is, is huge to corporations and to our economy sure. and, and to consumers. It's, it's huge all over the place. And so there are those, you know, um, in, in, the, in Washington um, who had introduced legislation that you would only have to um, reveal or notify about a breach, if there was, quote, a reasonable risk of harm and the corporation themselves could determine the reasonable risk of harm, which would greatly reduce the cost of notification, right? Yep. So, um, so that, you know, they, they re- a lot of those legislators and uh, people in Washington really don't like the California law because it has cost a fortune for them. And it also embarrasses them. It also means that their boards and um, their their stock goes down, their boards get upset. So, you know, I mean, on one hand, I love the fact that you had this cost of a security breach to bring it to a higher level. But what might that do to Congress, make them, you know, make it even harder to do a security breach, saying we don't need those, those uh, many uh, notification uh, well, yeah, I, I think the problem is that if you start watering down the law, 
you basically water you, you, you reduce the transparency of organizations to key stakeholders like customers and employees. I think it's an important requirement to notify in the event of a breach. Now, the problem with that harm test, because I, I, on, on the surface it kind of makes sense. If it's not going to harm you, why notify? But is the but who determines the harm? And I agree yeah. with you. But who determines the harm? I mean, if if you had like the the you know the shoe case, what was that? I forgot the the name. Uh, that they just lost the credit card information. That's not as dangerous. Yeah, that's not as dangerous as getting my bank account number, sure. my social security uh, number, my driver's license number, and all that information. If you're getting sensitive information that somebody can take a total ID takeover, that is far more egregious than just my credit card number. Absolutely right. And so when it's harmful, you know, to the individual and therefore to the organization. There's clearly an obligation to report, but I don't feel comfortable allowing the organization to make that judgment. I think it needs to be a little bit more objective, or you just remove the harms procedure and you basically just rely on the fact that let the consumer make the determination. And that's what we that decided in California. Yeah. yeah, the California law is a good law, and I, I think it works. I think it may be costly. But it's costly because companies need to be more accountable. Anyway, look, there's a way to solve the cost of notification. Don't have a breach. Or, Without or, a breach, you don't have to report. Or even even easier, just, you know, I think easier, although... Encrypt. Some, encrypt, exactly. Encrypt. I mean, if we, if we keep that, I think the only thing we were going to try and go back on that legislation and say that uh, we first, you know, had the carrot and the stick. The carrot was, okay, encrypt. The stick was, the trigger is automatic. But um, the only issue is if it's a dirty insider that has the key to unencrypt, then, you know, then encryption isn't really going to be the cure-all. Yeah, the dirty insider, the that that is obviously a risk that organizations deal with. And but but for example, you may know that it is a breach, and there was a person with really uh, excellent IT security credentials involved in it, and that might be a special case. So even under the condition of encryption, you, the organization should be proactive and and do the right thing and still notify. And that might be sec, you know being ethical. It, you know the law is one thing. It's a couple of steps above the law. You do what's right because it's the it is the right thing to do. Exactly. And I think some but, companies will do that. But you know, I mean, and and I think the good companies will. Mm-hmm. But there'll be those companies that won't, if unless you have it as a law. Unfortunately, you know, self regulation doesn't always work. Yeah, it and, doesn't always work, and, and I I agree with you. I think the, the California law is a good law, law, and I think that moving that harms test could be, unfortunately. Um, you know, a diminishment of of notification law in general. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, Larry, you know, I know you haven't really done, um, or have you, you haven't done a study on pretexting at, at corporations, have you, or are you in the process of doing well, one of those? A, yeah, we did a study on pretexting. Oh, we actually try to find out, you know, after the HP story, right, right. how pervasive is the problem of boards conducting investive, in, aggressive, excuse me, investigations of other board members, especially when there's an insider leak. And we found that it could be a pervasive problem that a lot of boards are using aggressive surveillance or or um, uh, other tactics to basically get at the source of a data leak at the board level or among executives. Um, I think pretexting is a good example, again, of, a, of an area that is, there's a lot of gray, right? Because on the one hand, it sounds like it's absolutely unethical and an awful thing. But on the other hand, if you're on a board and you have a responsibility to prevent uh, other board members from leaking confidential information, you know, the, uh, the, the Sarbanes-Oxley requirements, you know, where's the balancing act? You know, what's, what's investigations that actually are too aggressive? And so there again, I think it's the, leaving it to the hands of the company to make that determination is, a t- is not right. You know, we so need to have so there needs to be transparencies, for example, um, like here, we're at the station, right? We have surveillance cameras everywhere. Yeah. Everybody knows it, all right? I mean, I can see the surveillance camera here. I can smile right now. Lloyd and I are smiling. And we know there's surveillance cameras everywhere because we have expensive equipment. We're at the you know, sure. UCI campus. And um, one of our DJs, um, and I saw the surveillance camera, was drinking in the middle of the night because we're 24-7. And um, that DJ had to, you know, be fired, so to speak. 
And um, but you know what? Everybody knew there was surveillance. I mean, it, there's no hiding. Right. So, so if, you're transparent. It's it's yes. there. And then if you're dumb enough to drink or or toke online or whatever, it's at the end of the day there are consequences with, for bad behavior. And, and I think that's what it should it. be with HP. They're going to say, look, if you if you're going to be on this board because of the leaks and stuff, we're yeah. going to ask that you submit to this or don't be on the board. Exactly I mean, if they right. want to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think most board members, if, 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 if they understand the consequences, it's not that you're a bad person and you're, you know, you're, you're potentially doing an awful thing against the company. It's about transparency. If you're going to join a corporate board you know, with all of these rules and regulations, you may have to submit your telephone records to a private investigator in the event of a leak. Right. And I think 99% of the world that is on a corporate board would accept that. Right. Um, but it's about transparency. At the beginning, you let people know that. And then about pretexting, pretending to be someone else to get records, that there should be a, a clear law. It says, if you do that, you are committing identity theft. Well, that, that is in California and some other states. So ca- it is right. definitely the law in California. Well, California is so leading edge. I think some of it should spill over here in Michigan. We well, thank God they've got you in Michigan. Either oh. that or we're going to just have to bring you over here so you've got some buddies and <laughs> partners in crime, so to speak. We only have about five minutes, but I, you know, I wanted to ask. Through Lloyd says three minutes. Oh goodness! Well, I, four minutes. Okay, he's telling me four minutes. Okay, great. But you know what? I didn't get a chance to really go over your spyware study. You want oh, to just, thank you. but if you could tell us a little bit, just kind of the conclusions of what you found in, in a few minutes, I'd appreciate because I want people to hear about that. Sure. Now this is our newest study, and uh, this particular study looked at not spyware on our home computer or laptop, but in the corporate world, what's the corporate response to spyware? What does it look like? And what probably one of the kind of little-known facts, spyware could morph into a whole bunch of other bad things, including crimeware. The latest version of spyware, the latest thing to worry about, is a technology that goes after specific types of files or data. So, for example, suppose you have a record and it's labeled privilege confidential, attorney-client privilege confidential, or top secret. Right. This technology makes a copy of that and then transmits it outside your the you know from your system back to the the host, you know, the client, and then ultimately it's broadcast out perhaps through Outlook. Wow. Um, so there are all sorts of weird things like that that could actually cause a corporation to have an absolutely horrendous stay. Oh, and and yeah. what we find is that a lot of companies are not controlling that problem. They assume that on the client, on the desktop or laptop, by having a Symantec-type solution, which is fine, but it's not going to solve the big problem of the spyware infiltrating the corporate network. And so most companies, again, are either complacent about the whole thing or just accept that it's a risk and hope that their firewalls, you know, multi-layered firewalls and other perimeter controls will stop the problem. But the reality is it could become a much bigger problem over time. Now, this crimeware that we're talking about, some of it is actually pretty sophisticated software. Um, so I don't think we're going to hear the end of this. I think there will be a, probably a wave of activity over the next maybe three to six months, maybe longer, where we'll see corporations losing intellectual properties. And when that occurs, then we're going to start to take notice. Well, Larry, do you think that segregating, like having some computers that aren't online for the sensitive information, would be at least a start so that it doesn't even have access to being, you know, uh, accessed by a network? You know, that's a great question, and it goes back to that first study. If you know where your data is, basically have a Fort Knox over the the holy grail data, the data that you (laughs) consider the most important and and the highest level of risk, then all of these problems, they don't really have the same impact. It's right. when you have a mess of a, of a network and you don't know where your information is, that gives rise to all of these problems, including the potential of crimeware and spyware infiltrating your system and causing real havoc. Wow, it's really kind of overwhelming. It is. But, but scary. I want to I want to thank you, Larry, because there are people who are driving by who are in large corporations. We're in Newport Beach. This is there's a lot in Aliso Viejo. It's you know like the Silicon Valley. So we have sure. a lot of people that can hear us that are in these large corporations that do deal with these issues all the time. And you have been wonderful. I am I am so thrilled to be even you know affiliated with you as a oh. research fellow because that that is such an honor to be with somebody who's 
so brilliant. And oh, Lord, no, you we're honored to have you as a distinguished fellow of Poneman Institute, and thank you. <laughs> and let's give your website at Poneman.org so people can find out more about you, and they can listen to all of your interviews before. Hopefully, you are, are putting your interviews on your website as oh, well, definitely. so people can do that and, and link to ours as well. And Lloyd is saying the time is over. We will have you on again when oh, you have some great. more stories, uh, stories and surveys. So thank you, and you take care, Larry. Murray, thank you, and thank you, Lloyd. It's always a pleasure. Okay, you've been Bye, you've been thank listening you. to KUCI eighty eight point nine FM in Irvine and KUCI dot org on the net to uh, learn more about our previous guests, hear their interviews download podcasts and even subscribe to our podcast and even look at who's coming up in the next couple of weeks, go to KUCI.org slash privacy piracy and join us every week here at 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI. Thank you. Bye-bye. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 